Broadcasting from the Cradle of Liberty in Philadelphia. All the way to the rhythm and blues of Beale Street in Memphis. To high atop the Wasatch Mountains in Utah. This is where politically correct perception meets common sense. This is the Joe Carey Show. Hey, welcome to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Joe today. I understand Joe was uh, headed for uh, Area 51 as part of his uh, family vacation. Now, that is an unconfirmed rumor. But if he comes back with some interesting photographs and tales to tell, at least we'll understand that uh, this, this is one of the reasons why it was so necessary that, uh, that he take an extended vacation. Actually, I don't know. Does Joe have those kind of questions? Does, does, he, does he wonder if they are keeping aliens out there at uh, the Groom Lake base? I can't tell you, but I, I, I'm more than just a little bit mystified by the number of people who are focusing on this. And, and yes, I understand the irony, but so are you, Brian. You're looking at it right now. Um, I'm focusing on it somewhat, but uh, let's just say this isn't one of my primary concerns in life. And I do. I will say I marvel at the idea that 1.3 million people apparently have RSVP'd as saying that they're going to storm Area 51. They can't stop all of us. An additional one million people say, I'm interested. Now, for the record, I have actually been out to the gate of Area 51. This was about three or four years ago. Went out there with my friend Nathan Kalashaw. He's a photographer. Big, big UFO aficionado. I went out there with my friend Dr. T and with Nate's brother Joe. And we actually spent the night at the Little Alien which is definitely a play on words out there on the extraterrestrial highway. And you want to talk about someplace that is in the middle of nowhere. Rachel, Nevada is about as close as you can get. It's, it's absolutely astonishing. You get out there and yes, you can see the lights of Vegas. It's, it's more than a hundred miles away over the horizon. You can see the lights, the glow from the city, but then you turn around any direction other than South and West and you see this incredible nothingness. There aren't very many people. I don't know. I mean, we, we gave one guy a ride who was hitchhiking down the highway there. I don't know how many miles he was planning on going, but he had at least 20 to get to the next gas station. And he was just like, no, this is an everyday thing. Just do, 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 me and my water jug, walking, you know, walking along here. Now, it was January when we went, so it was pretty cold out, but uh, that's a brutal area. And it was interesting, too. You know, we, we went up to the, the gate, and there's clear warning signs, you know, U.S. military installation, deadly force authorized, blah, blah, blah. Lots and lots of cameras. We did take time to shoot a couple of selfies out there, you know, giving the mocking Jay salute, that three-fingered salute from the Hunger Games. And, and then we could hear the uh, security guys in their souped-up Ford Raptor pickups roaring our way to come see what we were up to. So we decided, you know, what, we're not going to stick around to uh, exchange pleasantries. We'll just go ahead and mosey on down the road. But I don't know. There's been a lot of a lot of speculation about Area 51. What's out there? Are there are there really aliens out there? Maybe you saw the 1970s movie Hangar 18. Tons of speculation and some very interesting stories, by the way, of uh, at least from from the owner and proprietor of the little alien uh, she talked about some weird thing, not not necessarily an extraterrestrial materializing, but um, strange lights and so forth, you know, that apparently can go through walls and, and whatnot. 
Didn't see it myself, but uh, it was an interesting trip, to put it mildly. So what's with the people who want to do what, what they're referring to as, uh, uh, as, you know, the Storm Area 51? We want to see for ourselves. And, and I can't decide if this is just like another fad, if this is like Pokemon Go, uh, you know, gone bad. I mean, my understanding is the participants are supposed to do what's called a Naruto run with their arms behind their back. It sounds like an interesting way to uh, meet friends. It also sounds like a really interesting way to end up in zip ties, laying face down in the dirt with guns pointed at you. But hey, you know, if, if you're into that kind of thing, I'm not going to tell you, <laughs> you know, not to have fun. There was a, an article today on intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Anna Matthews. This is actually published a couple of days ago. And Anna points out three event organizers have created an independent website. They're selling souvenir T-shirts with phrases like, I survived Area 51, or I was born on the wrong planet, or I saw them aliens. I'm glad to see they're using proper redneck syntax here. Yes, she says the event is obviously a joke, but a spokeswoman for the U.S. Air Force Base, Laura McAndrews, did give a comment to the Washington Post regarding the event, saying, look, Area 51 is an open training range for the U.S. Air Force. We would discourage anyone from trying to come into the area where we train American armed forces. The U.S. Air Force always stands ready to protect America and its assets. Now, apparently, uh, McAndrews is not the only government official to make comments that breed conspiracy theories about Area 51. A former Pentagon official, Luz Elizondo, says he believes that he that he believes in the possibility of aliens. And just this summer, a group of senators were briefed on unidentified aircraft, which some people think could be UFOs. President Trump even admitted that he had a UFO related meeting. However, he went on to say he does not believe in UFOs. Now, the government hasn't always acknowledged the existence of Area 51, nor the fact that they are looking into anything UFO or alien related. This lack of transparency probably helped give rise to the conspiracy theories that abound today. In fact, it was only in 2013 that the CIA released previously classified documents which indeed confirmed the existence of Area 51 and its history. During World War II, it was an area used by the U.S. military for routine military activities. However, the CIA revived the area during the Cold War era. They used it to develop the U-2 and A-12, both high-altitude reconnaissance, reconnaissance planes, as well as the F-117 stealth fighter. The development of those projects were, uh, those aircraft were very highly classified projects. Now, maybe some of you have heard about a guy by the name of Bob Lazar. He's a physicist and... In 1989, he claimed to have worked with alien-related equipment in Area 51. He also claimed to have seen alien cadavers and to have worked on UFOs, but those claims have never been verified. Bob Lazar, by the way, is still active, still around, very popular within the UFO world. He's the subject of a 2018 Netflix documentary titled, titled Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers. Now, the article here says it doesn't seem like a stretch to wonder if the documentary released just seven months ago served as the inspiration for the upcoming storming of Area 51. Even if he did serve as the inspiration, Bob Lazar was publicly denouncing the idea on Instagram. He said, I have to comment on this area, storm Area 51 thing. I do understand it was started as a joke by someone, but there are a number of people who are actually planning on showing up. This is a misguided idea. 
He says Area 51 is a classified research base. There are no aliens or alien technology located there. The only place there was ever any alien technology was at Site S4, south of Area 51 proper. That was 30 years ago. S4 may have moved decades ago, or it's possible it's no longer being used for the project. Interesting. However, the 2.3 million people who've demonstrated interest in the storm are apparently choosing not to heed Lazar's warning. Conspiracies surround Area 51, whether or not aliens or UFOs are in the equation. And even though the event may be a joke, it does a good job of exposing the curiosity of millions of Americans. And it also reveals over 2.3 million Americans can find common ground in alien conspiracy theory humor. You know, it's easier for them to believe in that than it is to believe that uh, their own government is, is fleecing them or unnecessarily regulating them out of their natural rights. That's the ironic part to me. Hopefully that 2.3 million will be able to get some answers to their questions later in the morning on September 20th when it's planned. It seems to me that it would be such a great red herring. If, if you wanted to get people all worked up and misled, even if they're just off by a few degrees, that would be the kind of story you'd want to plan. Well, you know, we have the remains of the flying saucer that crashed at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. Now, I've talked to a number of people who've actually been to Roswell and uh, some of the locals. Maybe it's just because it's good tourism. I don't know. Some of the locals there swear up and down. No, there really was a crash. And I've heard other people say with with great sincerity. Have you not noticed how technology took off after 1947? The kinds of advances that uh, that came about and they presumably believe that, you know, scientists were able to reverse engineer a number of things there. I don't know what to think. I'm keeping an open mind, so just understand, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you that categorically it cannot be proven, therefore it cannot be. The truth of the matter is, I don't know. I believe there's life out there somewhere. I don't think we are the only intelligent life in the universe. Where little green men or gray men, as the case may be, come in, I couldn't tell you. As far as the government having its hands on uh, some pretty top secret stuff, yeah, I think that's a given. And I'm not necessarily sure that that's a good thing. It seems as though the, the highest technology always ends up in the hands of the military and, and is always militarized, presumably, you know, for the best of purposes. But at the same time, there's a politician there saying, trust us. You may understand if I have some trust issues. <laughs> so if you're planning on going to Storm Area 51 September 20th, I will wish you the best of luck. While you're at it, you might want to grab a burger at the Little Alien. It really is good food, and at least you'll get something out of the trip. Hey, welcome back to the Joe Carey Show. Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. If you'd like to call in, you can do so at 801-331-8113, wherever you may happen to be listening to the program today. So you're probably familiar, if you've followed politics, you're quite familiar with the idea of class conflict or class warfare. I mean, ever, ever since Marx and Engels opened their big fat yaps and started talking about the history of the world is a history of struggle between the classes. And it just got worse from there. 
as Marxism spread first, uh, you know, uh, uh, politically and economically and now culturally, it has been a very interesting time and continues to be one. But have you noticed how the intensity has picked up? I've, I've tried to put a finger on this, and I really couldn't, couldn't say, why is it so much worse now? I mean, political correctness has been around for at least 30 years, at least in, in, in the form of, oh, look, I've got to be politically correct, or you shouldn't say things that way. Uh, things that we could laugh at even 20 years ago, we can't even begin to have a sense of humor about them anymore. So when I saw this article by Emmanuel Sesignon, This is on the American Institute for Economic Research. Progressives are replacing class conflict with intersectional war. A little light bulb went on. Ah, intersectionality. Now, here's my layman's description. If you can give a better one, I would welcome it. Again, 801-331-8113. Intersectionality is part of the victimhood culture. This, too, is part of cultural Marxism or political correctness. But the idea being that the more ways that you intersect with victimhood, for instance, as a uh, heterosexual white male. Now, let me amend that. As a confident heterosexual white male, um, there's almost nothing intersectional in my life. I have had nothing but privilege. And basically, people hand me money as I'm walking down the street if they're not too busy waving palm fronds to keep me cool on a warm day like today. Sometimes they'll offer me a ride and then they'll just hand me the keys and say, you know what? You deserve this car more than I do. You know, in some neighborhoods or some, you know, some counties, they'll actually say, please take one of my daughters. I would like you to, you know, to give her a better life. And I'm just like, no, look, I'm I'm married. I have a family. But they're just like, yes, but as a white male, you have the privilege and we're just acknowledging that because that's how it works. Right. Okay, let me tell you what intersectionality really looks like. It's uh, take take, for instance, uh, what was the name of the the legislator? I'm sorry, I I don't remember her name. uh, Just had had a big to do down in Georgia. She's a state lawmaker standing in line. I'm sorry. I want to say Erica Thomas. I think that's her name. She claims that a man told her to go back where she came from. This is after a guy called her out for trying to go through the express line in the grocery store. That's supposed to be for 15 items or less. She had a grocery cart full of groceries, but she started playing the victim card. Number one, she's black. Number two, she's a woman. Number three, she's pregnant. There's three different types of intersectionality of her victimhood. And this man, he was described as a white man, although he's actually Hispanic and he is from Cuba. And he actually didn't tell her to go back where she came from. He just said, hey, get out of here. This isn't the line you're supposed to be in. But somehow she may have misheard that or misinterpreted him as, as you know, repeating what President Trump was saying, because this guy was obviously a what? Oh, he's a what? A Democrat? Oh, all right. Well, nonetheless, black, female, pregnant, three degrees of intersectionality right there. If she had just commented on being gay, well, there's another degree of intersectionality. And and do you see what this, do you see how this works? The more angles that you can come at victimhood from showing your disadvantage. I mean, she's a lawmaker in the state of Georgia, so it's like, You're going to have a hard time convincing me she's among the most disadvantaged of us all. Really? She got elected to public office. She obviously has enough support from the community to land her a seat in the legislature. But it's all about the victimhood. And now this is the line that that is being this is the, the, the game that's being played. 
It's not just class conflict, it's intersectional war. Here's how the article describes it. Earlier this year, a Gallup poll showed that one in four Americans now support the failed economic system called socialism. Among young people, support's even more pronounced. The trend is grim. In 2010, 68% of them viewed capitalism positively. Today, that's fallen to only about 45%, with a slight majority favoring socialism. Now, a lot of people attribute this rise to Bernie Sanders. After all, it was his 2016 presidential bid that brought policies like Medicare for All and college debt, quote, forgiveness to the national spotlight. And there's obviously no doubt that he dragged the Democratic Party to the left. His brand of progressivism, though, is slowly being replaced by that of a self-named group called The Squad. Four progressive congresswomen who've dominated headlines in recent months, consisting of Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar. This group takes a more intersectional approach to socialism, which is to say that they have embedded identity politics more deeply in their vision than had previously been the case in mainstream socialist doctrine. While Bernie continues to rail against the infamous 1% from one of his three homes at the lakeside. The progressive congresswomen have pushed for the abolition of private health care, vast spending expansions, unrelenting attacks on what remains of free enterprise, as well as the deep politicization of race and gender identity and any other form of biologically based identifiers that one can possibly name. The Democratic presidential primary seems to reinforce this narrative. Bernie's been falling in the polls since the debate. In his place, Kamala Harris has been quickly rising. Why? likely because of her clash with Joe Biden on race. When she challenged him for his record of opposing certain desegregation efforts like forced busing, she struck a chord with progressives that helped bury her relatively conservative views on economics. So the new acid test on the left is whether and to what extent their leadership is willing to go beyond class conflict alone to invoke intersectionality as the dominant creed, pitting every conceivable combination of traits against every other. The vision here is wildly ideological. Conceptualizing society is a roiling cauldron of confusion and chaos that positions every marginalized group mixture as a victim of a ruling class archetype of the privileged and probably heterosexual white male. For this new generation of intersectional socialists, moreover, it's not enough to simply be the right skin color. Older Democrats like Hillary Clinton, even Barack Obama, largely benefited as a result of their identity alone. However, with women like the governor of Alabama banning abortion and Hispanic men like Ted Cruz opposing immigration, the new left has learned to avoid seeing someone as an ally based solely off their biological identity. By the way, I did see a pretty interesting video of a pretty large group of young black men walking through, I don't know what city it was, it looked like a pretty large city, all wearing Make America Great Again hats. And no, they weren't doing it to be ironic. These are legit supporters of President Trump. Would have been fun to watch all those uh, angry white uh, folks gather around and call them racist. <laughs> but that's the that's the reality that we're supposed to be ignoring. You know, suspend belief. Take take my word. Ayanna Presley said it best when she said it like this. We don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. And by brown voice, of course, she means a voice advocating for policies that she supports. So if you're a brown voice like Kanye West, who committed the cardinal sin of liking Trump, well, you're just putting on a minstrel show. The enemies of Sanders socialism, why, well, they're the rich. 
the enemies of squad socialism, squads at socialism, socialism are rich white men and any person of color that doesn't agree. And therein lies the difference. So when Ocasio-Cortez talks about the Green New Deal as a form of racial justice, she isn't pandering. For her, economics and racial justice are connected. And the same is true for the rest of her colleagues. Ilhan Omar put this on the front page of her website. Join our movement for racial, social, environmental, and economic justice. Not only is their socialism influenced by their intersectionality, their intersectionality is influenced by their socialism. So it's not a coincidence that the same group of people who hate the rich have begun to dabble in anti-Semitism. Both Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib have been criticized by their fellow Democrats for multiple anti-Jewish remarks. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but I think that this article is actually pointing out something that's worth understanding. Intersectionality, the battle cry of identity politics, is coming front and center. Are you prepared to withstand it? Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to the Joe Carey Show. Brian Heights sitting in for Joe today. Just a quick reminder, uh, the American Mutso Show coming up at uh, 1 o'clock Mountain Time here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. That would be immediately after the Joe Carey Show. So stick around. Just a quick follow-up here. Um, I was mentioning uh, the whole Storm Area 51 to-do uh, as we started the program today. And I saw this headline which brought a little chuckle to my lips here. Uh, Dyslexic man storms Area 15. No charges will be filed. Authorities feel bad. (laughs) Ah, Thank goodness there are still people who have a sense of humor. You're going to need one. As we continue on with this article about how progressives are replacing class conflict with intersectional war. So socialism and, you know, the economics that go along with it typically are based in envy. But when you bring in intersectionality, now you are taking identity and and especially victimhood and making them part of the equation. And as the author points out here, this intersectional brand of socialism is much harder to defeat because it's based almost entirely on emotion. So if someone's arguments are purely economic, then there's some hope that economic data can change their minds. But if their economic views are directly connected to their sense of racial and social justice, changing their mind is almost impossible. This is because the latter are moral issues which inherently defy objective analysis. You can't look at a graph and know whether or not reparations are morally correct. So when viewed this way, you get a little insight into why Bernie is somewhat anti-immigration. In an old-school socialist mindset, bringing cheap labor into the country by the millions undercuts American workers and only serves to help big corporations. To him, the idea of open immigration is nothing but a plot by the Koch brothers. The socialism of Ocasio-Cortez, on the other hand, embraces immigrants. Her followers see them as victims of American intervention in Latin America. They see taking them in as a form of justice. Jonathan Haidt, social psychologist and author of The Coddling of the American Mind, gave a brilliant TED Talk on the moral roots of the two parties. 
Now, if you don't have time, the video that's linked within this story talks about the importance of one word. That word is fairness. Specifically, it addresses the way in which the word meets two very different things to the left and right. The right focuses on fairness related to one's efforts, meaning if you work hard, you deserve to be wealthy. But progressives see fairness as being related to equality of outcomes. They assume that any difference in outcomes between two groups is the result of some form of unfairness. So with that worldview, it's obvious that the wage gap is caused by sexism, not differing life choices between men and women. Reparations for slavery are the right thing to do, no matter how much they cost in that thinking. And of course, third world poverty isn't caused by underdevelopment or poor monetary policies. It's caused by capitalism and imperialism. That results in proposals that leave economists scratching their heads. The Green New Deal would cost between 50 and 90 trillion dollars. In both Seattle and New York City, experiments with a $15 an hour minimum wage have hurt the same workers those policies claimed to be supporting. Progressive tax and spend policies have failed France so badly that riots broke out in the streets earlier this spring. But see, none of that matters to them. As long as their policies are morally correct, advocates for more government tend to ignore the effect that more government brings. What they don't understand is that market institutions produce socially optimal outcomes. Why? Well, because when the invisible hand of the free market is allowed to operate, competition increases innovation and decreases prices. Since the Industrial Revolution, this process has led to unprecedented prosperity in what's often referred to as the hockey stick of human prosperity. And that prosperity comes because people were able to make choices regarding their own self-interest, how to allocate the resources at their disposal, and in a way that, that most that most positively affects their own happiness. But as Emmanuel Sessignon says, with a, with a progressive worldview, this change is hard to see. After all, if income inequality is increasing in much of the industrialized world, and your worldview is based on equality of outcomes, that's all that matters. He's got a great point of view there. The whole identity politics thing to me is, is just distasteful because at its heart, it's a very ugly form of collectivism, meaning that no matter what kind of a person you are, in other words, no matter what, what the content of your character is, what kind of a heart beats within your chest, all that matters is what group are you assigned to or can I assign you to? What color is your skin? Do you have a religious belief or what's what is your sexuality? It's all about which identity group can can I put you with? And more often than not, that kind of labeling and that kind of identity assignment is so that you can be, just be lumped in with a whole. Well, my group which for the sake of simplicity, we'll call the victims group is opposed to you and your group, which we'll call the oppressor group. So therefore, I don't have to listen to anything you have to say. I don't have to treat you with respect. I don't have to respect your property or your inherent natural rights. No, I can tell you what to do and you have to do it because I'm a victim and you're not. Isn't that just an ugly way to look at life? And I think it explains so much of the anger and so much of the irrationality that is part and parcel of identity politics. 
just keep in mind, if, if you want to see happiness, if you want to see authentic happiness that comes from a person being able to, to pursue happiness in their own way, to, to make their own life choices, to find prosperity in, in the way that they see best. And by prosperity, I'm not just talking wealth. It may mean something else to them. They may feel prosperous when they're serving other people. I see this particularly among those who care for um, the very sick or the very old hospice workers, um, nurses, assistants, and so forth. I know, you know, some people tend to dismiss, well, they're just glorified bum wipers. Hey, I've seen how, how some of these people interact with people who are no longer able to care for themselves or who are right there on the threshold of, of leaving this life. And to me, they are probably the closest thing to angels that any one of us will encounter within our lifetime. But that doesn't matter to identity politics because all they're concerned about is what colors their skin. How much money do they make? What's their sexuality? What are their politics? So if you want to see people truly happy, truly able to prosper, you've got to acknowledge and respect the rights of the individual. That's really where liberty starts and finishes. It starts with respecting that tiniest of minorities, the individual, and recognizing that your individual rights depend upon you having respect and reverence for other people's individual rights, even if they exercise their rights differently than you. I still love the explanation of, you know, we should be free to do anything that's peaceful. I think it was Leonard E. Reed who talked about that. Anything that's peaceful should be fair game, because anything that's peaceful will stop short of infringing on another pe- person's opportunity or their rights to, uh, to live as they see fit. But identity, identity politics throws that all aside. They just want to know, which part of the collective will you be assimilated into? And if you're assimilated into my part, well then, hey, brother, or should I say comrade, <laughs> welcome. So good to have you. But if not, then you are my bitter enemy. And they're going to want to fight. Life is too short to walk around with a chip like that on your shoulder, to be envious of every person that you meet, or worse yet, to think of yourself as a victim who is powerless to do anything to lift themselves to a better position. And please understand, when I say lift themselves to a better position, I'm not just talking in economic terms. This is one of my greatest arguments against uh, modern politics, is we tend to define everything in material terms. How many people do you know who are, you know, very wealthy in material terms, but but live in utter poverty, morally, ethically, spiritually? I think we're meant to be a little more well-rounded than that. I will be sure to link this article in the show notes in the podcast of this episode of The Joe Carey Show. You can find it at anchor.fm. Just search up Loving Liberty Radio Network. Today's episode of the Joe Carey Show, I'll have this replacing the progressives are replacing class conflict with intersectional war. It's a pretty good recounting of what I see going on. It doesn't fill me with a whole lot of hope, but uh, but at least it looks like somebody's got a pretty good take on it. All right. When we come back, got a couple of different things we want to talk about. We're going to talk about how why writing things out by hand makes you smarter. I've actually had the chance to do this, and I'll tell you what. I hate writing things out by hand. 
but I think the conclusion here is absolutely true. We're also going to talk a little bit about the movie Airplane. Do you realize it's coming up on 40 years old? Still one of the best slapstick comedies out there. And if we have time, my friend Suzanne Sherman shared a great article on normalcy bias. If we can get to it, we'll talk about why it's good to overcome normalcy bias now rather than waiting until you're in a state of crisis. This is The Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. This is the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Joe today. All right. You're going to hate me because I'm going to side with your second grade teacher or any other teacher who told you, come on, work on your handwriting and keep writing those things down by hand. Now, look, I'm left-handed, so I have I have reasons. I got my reasons to hate writing by hand, starting with uh, I always ended up the day in school with a big old graphite smear down the left side of my hand because everything I'd written, my hand traveled right across. So... If I sound like I'm bearing a bit of a grudge, I am. Also, handwriting is tedious, and my penmanship was atrocious, and... Okay, you get the picture. But here's an article from businessinsider.com about why, about why writing things out by hand actually makes you smarter. And you know what? I think they're onto something here. The article says, typing is fast, handwriting is slow. Weirdly, that's precisely why handwriting is better suited to learning. Take it from research psychologists Pam A. Mueller of Princeton University and Daniel M. Oppenheimer of the University of California, Los Angeles, who did a fascinating study investigating just how terrible laptops are for note-taking in classrooms. Earlier studies have argued that laptops make for poor note-taking because of the litany of distractions available on the Internet. Well, yeah, I did want to check out Italian motorcycles rather than sit there and take notes, but uh, beside that... Their experiments yielded a counterintuitive conclusion. Handwriting is actually better because it slows the learner down. And by slowing down the process of taking notes, you actually accelerate your learning. So here's how it works. If a skilled typist, also known as an American millennial, is sitting in a classroom, he or she will be able to write down almost every word that the lecturer utters. But the thing is, that transcription process doesn't require any critical thinking. So while you're putting words on paper, your brain doesn't have to engage with the material. As learning science has discovered, if you're not signaling that the material is important to your brain, it's going to discard that lecture from the memory for the sake of efficiency. But if you're taking notes by hand, you won't be able to write down every word the speaker says. Instead, you're going to have to look for representative quotes or summarize concepts or ask questions about what you don't understand. You might even have to draw out some diagrams so that it makes sense. But do you see what's happening? Your brain is actually working on assimilating and trying to give some form or structure to that information. And that requires more effort than just typing every word out. And the effort is what helps cement the material in your memory. So the more effort you put into understanding something, the stronger signal you're giving your brain that, hey, this is worth remembering. Mueller and Oppenheimer conclude that for students, transcribing lectures verbatim rather than processing information and reframing it in their own words is detrimental to learning. Now, the benefits of handwriting, though it's a disappearing skill, have been documented by lots of educational psychologists 
who found that handwriting engages parts of the brain that typing neglects, especially those areas of the brain associated with memory formation. For these reasons, the, the arguments go, kids come up with more ideas when they're writing in cursive versus typing. So as French psychologist Stanislas Dehana told the New York Times, you may want to step away from the keyboard. He says, when we write, a unique neural circuit is automatically activated. There's a core recognition of the gesture in the written word, a sort of recognition by mental stimulation in your brain. It seems, to re- it seems that this circus is contributing in unique ways we didn't realize. The result? Learning is made easier, he concluded. See, I first heard this about 12 years ago, maybe a little bit longer. I was I was taking a class, you know, trying to, to study for a, you know, liberal arts education. And that was one of the things that I was told, except, except this class actually took it one step further. Not only did they recommend write things down by hand, there's something there's a connection from your hand to your brain and things get more firmly imprinted on your brain when your hand is having to form the words and images and concepts and write them out on the paper. But I also was taught and I believe this to be true. That when you read from a book, when you have this tactile sensation of paper underneath your fingertips, or maybe you're tracing along as, as you're reading a, a paragraph, or maybe you're actually annotating, making notes in the margins, or you're underlining passages that had particular interest to you, it sticks in your brain better than if you're simply scanning words that you're scrolling through on a screen. I think there's something to this. And even though I still loathe writing things by hand, in part because it's tedious and my hand gets cramped, I, I'm obviously not, not writing like I should, but my, my penmanship is awful. I'm embarrassed. But I do believe it's the better way to learn. And I go back over notes that I have taken by hand at various classes or seminars or lectures or conferences that I've attended, and... I find that I can better understand whatever it was I was trying to write. Now, if I read an article or even even if I type out an article, it's easier to forget those things. So I'm going to recommend give it a try. Try writing something out. In fact, if you really, you know, you don't want to do too much. I want to write my doctoral dissertation, all 80 pages of it. Okay, that's you can do that. Start with something simple. Write, Write a letter to someone. Write a note to someone. See if it doesn't stick in your memory a little bit more, if you're trying to teach them something. And the second part of that challenge is rediscover books. Pick up a book and start reading. Not your Kindle, not your phone, not your laptop, but an actual book. I know I'm just sounding like one of those old, uh, you know, hipster types who wants to just clack away on a manual typewriter and, you know, wear my beard and my horn rim glasses and a stocking cap. But I'm telling you, there's something that happens within your brain when you are handling a paper book. Give it a try. See what you think. All right. Airplane the movie. Surely you've seen this movie. Of course I haven't. Stop calling me Shirley. Yes, you you remember. Do you know the history behind this? This is an article from thevintagenews.com. And it was actually published a couple of months ago. But uh, I didn't realize the connections that the movie Airplane had 
with so many other great movies that came out of Hollywood. I remember when my friends went and saw it back when we were, I guess we would have been junior high school students at the time. And one of my friends coming home and telling me about all these crazy jokes. And it was so funny. And he was trying to describe it. And I was like, well, it sounds funny. But until I saw it, I really couldn't appreciate it. Well, here's a little bit of background on Airplane, the screwball story behind the ultimate slapstick parody. In 1977, Kentucky Fried Movie landed on an unsuspecting public. This was directed by John Landis, same guy who brought you the Blues Brothers. It was comprised of sketches, lampooning disaster, kung fu, kung fu, and black exploitation films. Based on this experience, young writers David and Jerry Zucker, together with Jim Abrahams, took another journey into parody two years later. And the result was one of the biggest grossing comedies of all time, Airplane. The Kentucky Fried movie had been independently produced. It was based on a live comedy act called the Kentucky Fried Theater. Established by Zuckers and Abraham in 1971, it further entertained audiences by showing videotaped spoof advertisements. In recording material off-air for inspiration, the team stumbled upon a 1950s melodrama set aboard a stricken plane, Zero Hour. With its earnest tone and an unintentionally hilarious content, it spurred them on to write a comedy version. And it wasn't too far off the original. However, the, in fact, the rights to Zero Hour had to be bought in order to avoid a potential lawsuit. The plot of Airplane follows pilot Ted Stryker, played by Robert Hayes, as he tries to navigate the plane ride from hell. Starting off as a passenger to pursue ex-girlfriend and flight attendant Elaine, played by Julie Haggerty, he winds up taking the controls after food poisoning spreads among the qualified characters. And the action is stuffed to the gills with sight gags, puns, and surreal setups. Pointing out the similarities between Airplane and Zero Hour, Paleo Future says everyone on the flight getting poisoned by eating fish appears as a plot point in both movies. Even some of the character names are identical. Ted Stryker is the main character in both films. Talking of fish, the group were still small fry in Hollywood terms. As Jim Abrams explained to the AV Club, we were sort of credible, but we attached ourselves as directors, so that was a deal breaker in most places. But we shopped it everywhere. Someone told me that they'd read a copy of the screenplay. I said, oh, yeah, where'd you find it? And they said, I found it on a bus. <laughs> well, eventually, the fun found a home at Paramount. Zuckers and Abrahams were rather amazed that anyone would give them a budget, let alone three and a half million dollars to make such a lark, according to the New York Times. So keen were the trio of writers and directors to recreate Zero Hour's vibe that they cast straight actors in absurd roles, like Robert Stack and Lloyd Bridges were hired, often to their confusion, in order to lend the slapstick heavy romp the right amount of weight. That allowed them to be more ridiculous with the jokes, Jerry Zucker explained to the AV Club. At one point, Barry Manilow was being thought of for Robert Hayes' part. Sigourney Weaver apparently auditioned for Julie's part, or Julie Haggerty's role. But the team wanted Hayes and Haggerty, and their natural innocence made her the perfect choice for Julie. So if you haven't seen Airplane in a while, dust it off. Might want to check if the kids are a little bit young. There are a few scenes that might be a little above their heads. And have a good laugh as this classic turns 40 years old. This is the Joe Carey Show. Stand by for the American Mutso Show next. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. Without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.